In the year 2015, the U.S. has by far the most unequal distribution of wealth and income of any major developed country on earth, and this inequality is worse today than at any time since 1928. We are moving in exactly the wrong direction. The fact of the matter is that over the past 40 years, we have witnessed an enormous transfer of wealth from the middle class and working families of our country to multimillionaires and billionaires. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past few years, you have probably heard this claim of a rising wealth gap, a rising trend in wealth inequality. It is at the heart of many claims about the negative effect of neoliberal governance. It's used as a justification for various populist economic projects, like Bernie Sanders' 2015 proposal to increase estate taxes on billionaires, or Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax. But the study in question, the study which makes this claim about rising wealth inequality in the neoliberal era, is a highly controversial study. Many have questioned its methods. In today's episode, Andrew Kleiman and I discuss his recent paper called Wealth Inequality in the U.S., Its Level, Trend, and Significance. We will link to that paper in the description, and you can see it on the MarxistHumanistInitiative.org website. What is wealth inequality? Has it really grown substantially over the past few decades? These are the questions we discuss in today's episode. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. You can find Radio Free Humanity most places podcasts are listened to. If you stop by the Marxist Humanist Initiative website, you can get our RSS feed and plug that into your favorite podcast player. If you like the podcast, please do leave us a comment and rate our podcast and your podcast app. We would love to hear from you. In a few minutes, we'll be talking with Andrew Kleiman about wealth inequality. But first, we're going to take a moment to discuss, as we do every episode, some current events. In today's current events section, we're going to talk about a piece by Daron Ajamoglu that came out on January 15th of this year in Project Syndicate. It's called, Is America Going Fascist? And in it, Daron Ajamoglu attempts to answer the ever-popular question of is Trump a fascist? Is he pushing our country in a fascist direction? I'm going to summarize his argument, and then we're going to do some critiquing. Right. I think one thing that listeners should know, because not everybody knows, I mean, exactly who is Daron Ajamoglu. He's not a household name, but he's a very prominent economist at MIT, very well-respected. So it's not just, you know, somebody writing on some random blog somewhere. So the basic structure of his argument goes like this, and I think it's worth just looking at the approach, the structure, I'm calling it, uh, at first, because I think there's some problems with it, and it's a very common approach we see people taking when trying to answer this question of, you know, is Trump a fascist? So he lists some similarities between historical fascism 
and Trumpism. And then he lists some dissimilarities and says because of these dissimilarities, then it can't be fascism. And then goes on to argue that the label fascism is unhelpful because it's too polarizing and doesn't allow for the resistance to Trump, for Democrats to see ways of you know, appealing to various parts of American society that they should be appealing to. And he, the similarities that he lists are things like Trump's racist rhetoric and his incitement of violence and his supporters and his delegitimization of democratic institutions. But in the dissimilarities, he says things like, well, Trumpism hasn't arisen as a reaction to the threat of the USSR. And uh, Trump hasn't tried to consolidate power by non-electoral means. And Trump doesn't have a base of young veterans of World War I who are numb to violence and prone to extremism. That's basically the way I read it, yeah. So I basically have beefs with the basic approach, the structure, the argument, and pretty much every point he makes along the way. Why don't we hear one of them? And then we can move on from there. Well, for one, just the idea that this question is a legitimate question that academics and scholars are debating should be alarming to people. <clears throat> so we can't like lose sight of the fact that any similarities are a bad sign. Whether or not we decide either way to you know give Trump that label of fascist, the fact that there are similarities should be a cause for real alarm. But to get to my criticism, I mean, the basic, the, we see this approach taken all the time when people are trying to answer this question. They give us a list of what does like seven things that fascism has. And then, well, if Trump, you know, checks off five or six of the boxes, oh, but he doesn't have checkbox seven, so it can't be fascist. End of question. It, this seems to me like a really unhelpful way of addressing the actual problem of getting to like what the essence of a social formation is, what its like essential character is that we reduce it to like this list. It, it, seem, it seems to me not a helpful or responsible way of addressing these kind of questions, especially if we uh, accept the idea that while historical circumstances may vary from time and place, that there can be real essential similarities in a social formation. To take a parallel example, we on the left, you know, have no qualms about using the word imperialism to refer to the behavior of the United States and its foreign policy. Um, even though modern U.S. imperialism has uh, a lot of dissimilarities between other historical appearances of imperialism, say Europe in the 19th century. Not, not to mention Roman imperialism yeah, you know, a couple thousand right. years ago. Yeah. So if you made like a list of like, these are the things that Roman imperialism had, you know, oh, well, you know, they didn't, they don't have, we don't have swords now, you know. Yeah. Or we don't pay, you know. We people. use a different number system. We don't wear togas, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you could make a list of things that, yes, yes, definitely those were the ingredients that led to the rise of Hitler. And yes, we do not have all of those ingredients today. We might have other ingredients that are just as bad, you know. The Nazis had the radio. We have Facebook, you know, what has more ability to sow uh, misinformation and propaganda? What's a, what's a stronger tool for sowing hatred, division, misinformation, ignorance, stirring up violence? You know, the radio or Facebook? I think Facebook is much more dangerous and 
a, a more sort of virulent form of fascist propaganda than something like the radio was. So these kind of things make me highly skeptical of this checklist approach to talking about fascism. Yeah, I, I, I entirely agree that this was exactly my thought, and it o- always bothers me, this way of reading things. I mean, it's like saying, you know, gee, look at look at human beings and whales, and they're really different human beings and whales, so don't be calling whales mammals. You know? The fact is, they're both mammals, right? That kind of stuff doesn't work. And the, the other thing that you mentioned was, you know, the, the essence of a thing. The laundry list approach doesn't get at the essence of a thing. We need the kinds of definitions that get at the essence of things, that isolate the differentia specifica. If you don't have a concept about what makes fascism fascism and what makes it different from something else, you're just like, here's how I choose to define fascism, and this this matches and this doesn't. But he doesn't even get that far because he doesn't even have a list of what makes something fascism. He just basically... It's it's like he it's like he has no sense of what a mammal is. He has no list of features of a mammal. Even he just says, "Look at the difference between human beings and whales." Human beings got a lot of things similar to whales, you know, but they got a lot of things different from whales. So don't call them mammals. That's that's the the logic of the argument. Yeah, and then even his examples of like what the dissimilarities are, I I'm, I don't buy them. I mean, for instance. His argument is that, uh, you know, people were driven toward fascist politics because of their fear of communism, of the Soviet Union and the Communist Party in Germany. Whereas he says, yeah, you could make a parallel between the sort of fear of white replacement in the U.S. today by white nationalists. But that's not a real threat. It's just a perceived threat. But I don't, I don't see how you can differentiate like the perception of a false threat from the perception of a real threat when you're just trying to gauge people's um, subjective attachment to a political formation. I don't know why the, 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 the reality of the threat has any bearing on that. You, you understand it better than I do because I, I just couldn't even make sense. I still can't really make sense of, of, of what he's trying to get at there. Yeah, and I mean, historical fascism was also based on the perceptive perceived threat of Jews controlling society, which of course was not a real threat, was just a perceived subjective threat, but it's still that perception was a real perception that caused people to support fascism. But moving on to other parts of his piece, he later takes, repeats this thing we hear all the time, saying that uh, Trump supporters were motivated not just by their sort of reactionary beliefs, but also because they felt left behind economically and politically. Right. And he not only says that there was a feeling, you know, economic anxiety, subjective, he says they felt, and in many cases truly were, left behind economically and ignored politically. That's a direct quote. Right. Not only does he say that, he says they, quote, voted for Trump because of that. So we got two claims about not only how people right. feel, perceive, yeah. but also what really is the case and that this drove the vote for Trump. And he, you know, and and every time we see this claim about Trump voters nowadays, I never see it with like reference to anything. Just not like never a footnote or like a link to a study. It's just sort of stated as if it's common knowledge. 
because it's kind of hard to find studies, and when you find them, they're piss poor. Yeah. Uh, they don't really go to the point. Uh, and all, there's, there's like a, a mountain of evidence on, on the other side. And if listeners uh, haven't heard past episodes where we discussed these kind of issues, they should check out episode one of Radio Free Humanity, which is called Obama Trump Voters. Okay, so the crux of his argument is that this label fascist somehow plays into Trump's hands and also creates this partisan polarization that makes it harder to mobilize against Trump. Okay, but just to call the problem partisan polarization to me falls into the both sidesism of Trumpism. Right. Yeah. You know. Right, yeah. It's right. it's like gee, there's partisan polarization. You know. Yeah. Uh, Fields, you know, slammed his car into Heather Heyer and killed her, but she was there for him to have a car to slam into her with, you know? So the problem is polarization. No, the problem isn't goddamn polarization. The problem is, you know, she's demonstrating and and he's he's a a white supremacist that decides to to kill people, okay? The the problem is not both sides there, okay? The problem is his side. And until we recognize that the problem is on the other side, and I don't see how you do it, you can use other words than fascism, but you, you have to say that it's not just Trump himself, but you have to say this whole other side, you know, which is the core of his base, that is the underlying problem. Without them, there would be no Trumpism, you know, and, and no Trump. He actually says that calling Trump supporters fascist, um, quote, would be delegitimizing the grievances of millions of Americans, most of whom have nothing to do with white nationalism or extremism. The, the, the same research that we were talking about, that the motivations of uh, Trump voters was, was not, you know, economic distress. It wasn't even economic anxiety, really, uh, in any causal way. Racism, xenophobia, you know, misogyny, those those were the driving forces, okay? First of all. Second of all, how can you say that his base has nothing to do with white nationalism or extremism? They're sticking with him, you know, after Charlottesville, after the family separations, you know, after the genocide in Puerto Rico. This has nothing to do with white nationalism or extremism? I, I, I don't I don't buy it at all. Yeah, and I think here the parallel with Nazi Germany is actually very helpful because most historians of that period would agree that both economic distress and extremely reactionary ideas both played a role in mass support for the Nazi party. It's not like those two things cancel each other out. Right. A lot of people supported the Nazi party who maybe weren't as extreme in their positions as... Um, like the hardcore Nazis. They supported them for different reasons. The conservatives supported them because they thought they could control Hitler and get what they wanted out of Hitler. Um, you know, All sorts of different factions of society decided, well, their best bet at that moment in history was to th- support the Nazis because they were th- the better alternative to something else. And that process of lots of people compromising and deciding that this was you know, better than the communists or better than the social democrats or better than whatever they, they saw the Nazis as, a, as an alternative to, that created this situation in which the fascists were able to take over the country. So you know, 
whether or not every single Trump supporter is an irredeemable white nationalist isn't really the the metric as to whether the movement is fascist and, and whether the dynamic in our country is in a similarly dangerous place. I mean, I, 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 I worry just as much, I mean, I worry about the, the extremist, authoritarian, white nationalist, misogynistic, rabid Trump supporters, but I also worry about the like, moderate Republicans who will embrace Trump because they somehow see him as less threatening than the Democratic opponent. Yes, your, 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 your parallel, your historical parallel is quite right. These are just like the quote, good Germans, close quote, who looked the other way, made excuses, allowed Hitler to, to come to power, and, and, and so forth. Yeah, when you read histories of historical fascism, yes, the, you know, historians want to know how the most brutal, hardcore fascists became that way, how concentration guards could torture people and kill millions of people. But they also are often more interested in the question of how ordinary Germans went about their lives, um, knowing that a lot of horrible things were being done, but they were still able, but they weren't participating in those things directly. And maybe they didn't even believe in or support all those things completely, but they were still got up in the morning, took care of their kids, went to work, read the newspaper, knew there was a war and blah, blah, blah going on and sort of tolerated and acquiesced to being part of that society. Uh, this is absolutely the, the, the case and, and uh, a tremendous amount of thought by philosophers like Heine Arendt on the banality of evil has dealt with this question and experiments in psychology. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take much, right, to, you, you, don't, you don't have to start out as a, as a cr crazy lunatic to, to be a potential element in a, in, a, in a fascist wave of reaction. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have today for this current events section. Up next, our discussion about wealth inequality. So, Andrew, you just came out with a paper called Wealth Inequality in the U.S., its level, trend, and significance. And we'll link to that in the uh, podcast description, and people can find it on the MarxistHumanistInitiative.org website. Um, you came just came out with this paper, and it sort of examines this question of uh, what's been happening with wealth inequality over the past few decades. Why did you decide to tackle this topic? What's going on is that I'm writing a book on the relationship between uh, the anti-neoliberal left and Trumpism. And one element of the book is the narrative in the anti-neoliberal left, which is quite flawed that there's been under neoliberalism a massive increase in inequality of income. And I spent a long time getting my head around all of the numbers from the various studies and the different kinds of things that one has to take into account to really un understand the, the inequality of income issue. And I found, and that was like really entirely by accident, that, you know, the idea that the wages of the workers had stagnated and all, all of this was really seriously flawed. And, you know, I was working on that and publishing things related to it. 
And all of a sudden, um, people start asking me about inequality of wealth, you know, and I had never heard much about inequality of wealth. I mean, I knew in, in general, but people didn't talk about it. And then all of a sudden, everybody's talking about inequality of wealth. And my answer to everybody was always, well, look, you know, I, I don't know. It's a complex issue and I don't have time to research it at, at, at the moment, you know, because I, I, I knew how in depth and you know how many rabbit holes you got to go down to to get your head around the inequality of income i assume the inequality of wealth is the same thing so i just didn't deal with it uh, but now I am writing a book and I got all this stuff about inequality of income. And what would I do? Just avoid the inequality of wealth, pretend like it doesn't matter. No, I can't do that. Right. It looks like I'm hiding something. So I say, OK, I got to bite the bullet, you know, go down this rabbit hole or, or several rabbit holes. Uh, and so that's 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 what I've just just done recently. I looked at the, the whole inequality of wealth issue uh, and I, I wrote up my um my results, what I found, my conclusions such as they are, although I end the, the piece in lieu of a conclusion. Uh, so that that's uh, an article in With Sober Senses, the Marxist Humanist Publication. Um, so this is, you know, a standalone publication, uh, but it's some version, some, something like it, I, I do expect to make its way in, in, into the book that I'm working on. So we started off the podcast by, by playing a clip from a Bernie Sanders speech recently in which he quotes or refers to this idea that there's been a rising trend of, of inequality in wealth uh, over the past few decades. And we should probably lay out exactly what that claim is and talk about it a little bit so people understand what we're, you know, what we're talking about here. I mean, the claim is that over the past few decades, over the neoliberal period, um, the wealth owned by the top, you know, minority of the wealthiest Americans has grown, while the wealth of the rest of society has stagnated or gone down. That there's been a, even the claim that there's been a transfer of wealth from uh, the, the sort of bulk of society to the richest. Um, so let's go into the details of what's going on here. Can you at first just you know, make sure we understand what we're talking about when we talk about wealth uh, as opposed to income. For me, the simplest way to think of it is always to imagine a pool or a pond and some water streaming into it, right? And some water streaming out of it. Okay. So the pool or the pond, that's wealth. It's an accumulation of H2O, but it wouldn't be, a, you know, it'd be, it'd be money or something, right? Okay. So that's the wealth. It's this pool or pond. Income is like your current income, this year's income, this month's income. That streams into the pool, okay? Now, there's also something streaming out of the pool. And that's what we call consumption. So you buy consumer goods and services that could be out of your current income, you know, so it could go from the stream in directly out or it could come from elsewhere in the pool, you know, but it streams out. So that's income stuff go, goes into the pool, consumption stuff goes out of the pool. So any income that is not consumed, you know, used to purchase consumer goods and services, if you've got more income than what's leaving in consumption, the, the amount of stuff and the pool's getting bigger. So your wealth is increasing. Okay. So uh, the technical terms that get used are the stock and the flow. The What I've been calling this, the stream of water in, uh, that's the flow, that's the income, that's what goes in. And the, the, the pool is the stock of wealth. So the two things are related, but, you know, one is current and one is an accumulation throughout all time minus whatever's been taken out. I like that analogy. I think that's helpful. So when we're talking about wealth, 
what does wealth actually consist of? Uh, you know, people can measure it various ways, and people have been uh, moving towards more and more comprehensiveness in recent years, uh, which is to say counting as components, types of wealth, things that were not previously counted. And I think your paper is very clear, and it was helpful for me in laying out all the different component parts of what are included in this abstract category of wealth. Um, there are people's houses, like their primary residences, as well as, say, like the uh, secondary and vacation homes of the wealthy. Um, there are cars and other durable goods, like maybe tools. Um, there are people's uh, savings and their bank deposits. Um, and then there are like financial assets, like bonds and stocks, and of course, pensions for people that might have pensions. Oh, one more, one, one more, one more thing. Of course, a major item actually uh, when we talk about wealth is ownership of businesses. Okay, so there's on the corporate side. If you own part of a corporation, you got shares of stock, or you might even own the whole corporation. But there's a lot of businesses, you know, that are uh, partnerships, uh, all, all kinds of things, and so ownership of businesses is, is another element of wealth. Well, the thing about your paper that sticks in my head the most is figure two, and people can go to the MarxistHumanistInitiative.org website and read your paper and find figure two, and they'll probably find it maybe just as interesting as I find it. Uh, you've divided the country into different wealth brackets, the bottom 50%, and then the next 40%, the next 9%, and then the top 1%, the wealthiest top 1%. And you've shown how different uh, so each group of Americans, their wealth is composed of a different balance of assets. So for the for like the bottom 90% of the population, most of their wealth consists of homes and other real estate and then durable goods and then you know maybe some pensions. Whereas for like the wealthiest of Americans, um, real estate is just a very small part of their wealth portfolio. Most of their wealth is in the form of non-corporate business equity and uh, financial assets like stocks and mutual funds and bonds. And for me, when I saw this bar graph uh, mapping out the, this different sort of distribution of wealth assets between the you know, richest Americans and the rest of the country, that helped me get a very, uh, a very clear view about what we're talking about when we're talking about wealth inequality. Right. For me, this is the main issue. It's like, you know, I understand the measurements, I mean, pretty well now, you know, and it's just like, what the hell is it that we're measuring here? I mean, I know, I know that it's wealth, you know, I, I can define it for you, but it's, I, I just will never get my head around the idea that people can think of a business that somebody owns and a house that somebody lives in as being the same kind of thing, right? And when you call them both wealth, you're saying that they're the same kind of thing. And it, to me, it just makes absolutely no sense. But but that's the, the terrain on which all of these discussions take place, right? I mean, the way the way I see it is, is, is working people in this country have very, very little of what I would call wealth, um, you know, for, for, 
for people who have one house and they live in it, what are they going to do? Sell it? You sell it, you got, you got to get another house, right? You, or, or, or you rent, but you have to have some place to live, right? I mean, I understand that you can get capital gains on your houses, okay? That that I do understand, you know, so it's not like, you know, well, gee, I just bought a fish for dinner and I can't get a capital gain on that. Yeah, I understand the difference between the fish for dinner and the house, but still a house that you live in and you need to have some place to live in, that's really different from ownership of a business, you know, or, or ownership of, of shares of stock. So there are big conceptual issues, I, I think, when we talk about wealth here, because, you know, th- this is one thing I try to do in the article was just to like focus in on the differences between, you know, the kinds of things that are the wealth of the working class and, you know, and the kinds of things that are the wealth of the one percent, um, which you were referring to. I, 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 I focus in on that because it's just it seems to me that. It's not just that there's a difference in, you know, where the wealth is held, but it's a meaningful difference in in kind and uh, to what extent it really functions as wealth versus functioning as, you know, something that people need to live. So in the Bernie Sanders quote that we kicked off the podcast with, he says that, Over the past 40 years, we have witnessed an enormous transfer of wealth from the middle class and working families of our country to multimillionaires and billionaires. Do you see evidence for this type of transfer? You know, I I think the the transfer claim that that Sanders made, I I think it's wrong. It may depend on what you mean by transfer. But when you hear that the wealth has been transferred, does that connote to you that at one time a group of people had more and now they have less because it's been transferred? Yeah, definitely. Okay, that's what it connotes to me. And if, if that's the case, then Sanders is just dead wrong about that. Okay, if the whole pool of wealth had remained constant, then the people at the top could get a bigger share only by taking, resting somehow wealth from the rest of the population. Okay. But, and I'm just, we'll assume for the sake of argument that they are getting a bigger share at the top. Okay. So how do they get a bigger share? Well, if the pool of wealth had remained constant, they could get a bigger share only by reducing other people's share somehow. And not only the share, the amount. Okay. They would get more wealth by taking wealth from other people. Okay. That would be a transfer. But that hasn't happened. Okay. What has happened is that there's been additional wealth created in the meantime. And the people at the top have gotten a disproportionately large share of that new wealth. But that doesn't mean that the wealth of the people at the bottom has gone down. It too has gone up. They've gotten some portion of this additional wealth that's been created. So there hasn't been any transfer in the sense in which you and I understand the word transfer. Okay. You know, it's not like I've got more, you know, because I got it and you have less. I've got more. You've got more. It's just that the amount more that I've gotten is so much more than the additional amount that you've gotten. But it's not, that's not a transfer. Okay, so 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 the idea is that rising inequality, whether it's wealth or income, does not mean that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Okay, it does mean the rich are getting richer, more or less. It does not mean that the poor are getting poorer in any absolute terms. Where does this claim about rising wealth inequality come from? Well, that's what's interesting. And that's why I told you I hadn't paid any attention to the inequality of wealth. And nobody had, basically. It's because for decades, you know, I mean, kind of like 
always the studies that were out there told us that the, the distribution of wealth was more or less constant in the United States. You know, maybe went up a little bit or in this circumstance, maybe went down a little bit, but it was, you know, either constant or growing uh, modestly and, and slowly. Okay. What happens is uh, around 2004, you get a new study by Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, who are collaborators with uh, Thomas Piketty, the author of Capital in the 21st Century. And it was it's kind of a repeat with what happened with the income inequality stuff. You know, uh, around 2001, Piketty and Saez come out with this shocking paper, you know, which puts forward a claim that the rise in inequality of income is much greater than other studies have shown. It's really associated this rise with, you know, the turn to neoliberalism in terms of when it occurs. And Sayes, who's the same Sayes as, you know, in Piketty and Sayes, Sayes and Zuckman basically are telling the same story with regard to the distribution of wealth in their 2014 paper. It gets published eventually in 2016. And that, again, you know, it's shocking and it radically changes the, the discourse um, because of their prominence, because of, uh, their, their claims get picked up in uh, the media and by politicians like, like Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren and so forth. So that radically changes the discourse and everybody's like, you know, is what they're saying true? And, and you know, and you're talking about income, but what about wealth? What about wealth? What about wealth? All of a sudden you're hearing what about wealth? What about wealth? And just so people have some some context here, you have written a fair amount uh, questioning and calling into doubt this narrative of rising, uh, drastically rising income inequality during the neoliberal period that was put out by uh, Piketty and Saez and, and Zuckman. I, I would not claim that there was no rise in inequality during that period. Let's say from the early 80s to to, to the Great Recession. Post Great Recession is a whole other whole other issue. Okay, so but in in that period of pre Great Recession neoliberalism, it looks like yes, there was some rise in income inequality. The question is, was that rise of the magnitude or anywhere near the order of magnitude that uh, Piketty and Sias, uh claim. And what they, it's helpful for people to understand uh, why this argument has been going on so long. They basically came along in the early OOs and said, we have a data source that is much better than what people have been relying on. And it shows something very different because it captures the incomes of the people at the very top, whereas the traditional source does not, because for confidentiality reasons, the uh, traditional source said uh, the technical term is top codes, um, the incomes of the people at the top. So in other words, it might just say, um, you know, there's 417 uh, people with incomes of more than 1 million, right? That would be an example. So the top code is 1 million, you know, well, how much more, you know, it's above 1 million. Is it 1 million point five, 2.7, you know, so you get very uh, inexact measures of, of what's happening at the very top. So they have this information that's not not top coded. It comes from the Internal Revenue Service. It's uh, tax return information, uh, and it's 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 not it's not top coded. So so they attributed the variant results that they were getting to the fact that they're using a better source of information. It turns out that's mostly not what was going on. To some extent, 
it's part of what was going on. But there are many other things that they did differently than other people. And most of their most of the difference between the Piketty and Sias results concerning the magnitude of the increase in income inequality, most of the difference between them and everybody else is not a matter of the fact that they are better capturing the incomes of the people at the very top. It's a matter of the different methods they use when handling the data that they handle. I mean, part of it is inherent in tax return information. Inherent in the tax uh, returns are the idea that what you're looking at, you know, one unit, you're looking at a tax unit. You're not looking at a household. You're not looking at a family. You're not looking at an individual person. You're looking at a tax unit. What's the problem with that is it's a rubber ruler. A tax unit could be one person. Uh, it could be a married couple, two people. It could be a married couple with dependents, three, four, five people, right? So, you know, when you want to look at like income per tax unit, um, it can be a variable sizes. Sizes the the marriage rate is is going down, so we're getting relative to the number of people in the country, we're getting more and more and more tax units. The number of tax units is going is growing even faster. So the income per tax unit is rising less than the income per person or income per household. Um, and however, that's happening not at the top mostly. It's happening in the rest of the population. So that raises inequality by slowing down disproportionately the growth of income uh, and the rest of the population when you, you do the numbers this way. So there's there's inherent problems like of using tax return uh, information. Uh, there are other inherent problems. For instance, what the, the tax authorities, uh, you know, say is income, what's taxable income. It's not the same thing all the time. Uh, and one major issue is that, you know, some income is corporation income, profits of, of corporations. Some of it's individual income, okay? But what's the problem with that? Well, if you own a business, you can shift from one to the other. You have a corporation, you can unincorporate, you know, and and you can have uh, – or make it into an S corporation rather than a standard C corporation. And so originally your business profits, your business income got reported on the corporate um, side – then you shift and, you know, you, you take it as individual profit income, okay? Uh, well, the first thing doesn't appear in the statistics that Piketty and Sias are, are looking at. Why? Because they're looking at individual income, and that's reported as corporate income. Then the tax laws change. It becomes more advantageous for tax reasons to report individual income. That happened in 1986. Uh, and so all of a sudden, you get this huge boost in individual income of those at the very top. And it's associated just with the change in the tax laws. So all of a sudden, you look at all the Piketty and Sias numbers, you know, you look at the graphs, you look at what happens between 1986 and 1988, there's this huge rise in the income share of the, the top 1%, the top 0.1%, uh, and so forth and so on. That's not a real rise in income. That's just actually a shifting of income from the corporate roles to, to the individual roles. So that's, again, a rubber ruler kind of uh, measurement issue. Um, there, there's just not a consistency uh, in terms of what's being counted here. 
Um, and then there are just other things as well in, in terms of how Piketty and Sias measured income uh, that's just different from everybody else. Um, they looked at what they called market income. So they didn't look at things like um, Social Security payments, uh, Medicare payments, um, you know, transfer payments, so welfare uh payments, all of that. They didn't look at transfer payments. They didn't look at the, they didn't take into account the effect of um, income tax. You know, they looked at pre-tax rather than after-tax income. Um, so um, also, also uh, most studies had uh, tried to get at you know, it's difficult when you've when you've got a household, right? Because you've got like a household of one, and you got a household of four. You know, and are you going to say that the household of four is at the same standard of living as the household of one, only if it has four times as much income? Yeah, you know, people don't want to say that. They want to say, well, you know, a household of four needs like double the income as a household of one to have the same standard of living. You know, because they're they're able to share. So what they do is they make size adjustments. Okay, so they report size adjusted income or the income of size adjusted households. Well, Piketty and Sias just used straight tax units. They don't they didn't have any of that. So. You look at all of these kinds of differences in methods, okay, partly that are based on just the rigidity of, of the, the tax return information, but you look at all these differences in methods and it turns out, numerous people have looked at this, it, it, it turns out that it's the differences in methods rather than the different data that Piketty and Sias are getting because they're better able to capture the incomes of the people at the very top. It's the difference in methods that is responsible for most of of the difference between what they find and what other people uh, have found. And most people are very suspicious uh, and not favorably disposed to the picketing and Sias methods, whether they're intentional or whether they're, you know, sort of built into the, the tax return information. Now, haven't Piketty and Sias retracted or taken back some of these claims? Yeah, what this basically means is they they made claims regarding the distribution of income based on these very controversial uh, and somewhat dubious methods that they used. They repudi a few years ago they repudiated a good deal of the methods that they had been using, and they said that these things, these aspects of their method, were not appropriate for uh, discussing the distribution of income. So recently, Piketty and Sias uh, and Zuckman have kind of redone all of the Piketty and Sias income stuff coming closer to the kinds of methods that uh, other people have been using. So right now, there is a lot more convergence in terms of what everybody's doing because everybody is kind of like, okay, we do have to use this tax return information to get a better measurement of the people at the very top. Piketty and Sias are saying, okay, yeah, it's not really right to just be using tax units. And yeah, we didn't measure inflation you know, right. And yeah, you do have to count in benefits that employers provide uh, as income of people, not just their money income uh, and so forth and so on. So there's been a lot more convergence. Okay. There's still, you, you, you still get in the end graphs that look radically different. Uh, and that's a source of continual controversy. And, and it's really disheartening, but 
there's a lot of disheartening things that are, that are going on, both with the inequality of income and the inequality of wealth studying now, because there is so much guesswork involved. You know, there's what they call imputations and there's estimates. And, you know, in the old days, whether it was correct or incorrect, at least you had a sense of something concrete being measured. Now, I, I don't get that sense. I get a sense of what I'm being provided with is a simulation, you know, a, a bunch of what if experiment. But but that's that's where it stands. So I mean everything everything's kind of iffy. And the, the the main takeaway that I get is you know we should just not be talking about income as if like it's the single thing and it means the same thing to everybody. And what has happened to it is clear because you you, you read in the paper or that such and such happened that you know okay well that's just a plain fact you know like you know the distance between the Earth and Alpha Centauri you know is is a plain fact no. Uh, it, it's nothing like that. It's the results depend on your concepts, and the, the concepts, if not infinitely tweakable, are at least tweakable to a great extent. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity. In just a moment, we're going to talk about the political uses of the rising wealth inequality argument. Uh, but first, we're going to hear a couple of things from the organization which sponsors our podcast, Marxist Humanist Initiative. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So this this thesis of rising wealth inequality, uh, as opposed to some understanding of capitalism which sees 
wealth inequality as an intrinsic part of a capitalist society, this idea that it's something that is trending upwards sort of implies, without saying directly, that um, that that you know the problems with inequality of wealth are the result of the mismanagement of capitalism by bad actors, by neoliberal politicians, and, and the like. And that if capitalism was managed differently by more progressive uh, forces, Sandinistas, say, or other left populists, then we wouldn't have um, such an unequal society. Yes. If we had, you know, uh, reformers who were more interested in uh, the well-being of the 99% and not so interested in the well-being of the 1% and the campaign contributions that you get from them, it, we, it would be different capitals. So does your research into wealth inequality uh, maybe lead one to question that narrative? First of all, given that, you know, uh, let's, let's take the, the, the inequality of wealth issue. Given that looking at the studies, looking at the data as a whole, it is unclear what has been happening with the distribution of wealth. Everybody agrees it's become somewhat less equal, okay? But how much less equal? There are huge differences between Zuckman, uh, Sias and Zuckman on the one hand, and pretty much everybody else on the other. Huge differences. So most people are saying, well, there's been a modest rise in wealth inequality. Sias and Zuckman say there's been, you know, an astronomical rise in wealth inequality. They're definitely in the minority, and it's not just a matter of opinion here. There's, uh, it, it, you know, issues of, of how one deals with data and the assumptions one makes and so forth. Um, that lead me to think that there's something seriously wrong with their, their numbers. But uh, given that, that, you know, the facts concerning what the trend has been are, the, the facts are not at all clear, particularly because of that, it seems to me that this focus on the trend in inequality is excessive. Why, why should we not be focusing on the level of wealth inequality? It's enormous. It's enormous and it's always been enormous. <laughs> under capitalism. You know, we don't have good data for, you know, 400 years ago, 300 years ago. You know, may, maybe maybe we, we've got it for about 100 years now. But throughout the whole 100 years, everything indicates uh, we've had massive inequality of wealth. And then you combine that with what we've been talking about, how the wealth, so to speak, of the bottom 50% or even them in the next 40%, the bottom 90% of the population is, is just of a different kind. It doesn't even mean the same thing as the wealth of the, of the people at the top. You know, it's not stocks and bonds and ownership of businesses in the main. There's a little bit of that, but not in the main. Okay. When you when you take into account the massive nature of the, in, the inequality, the massive degree of inequality of wealth, and, and the fact that if you're counting the wealth of the working population at all, you, you, it's not wealth in the sense of stocks and bonds and business ownership. It's, you know, it's houses that people live in and their, their bank accounts and pensions for retirement and the cars they drive and stuff like that. 
you know, this is the major, the latter is the major inequality of wealth problem that, that we face, not, not, not the trend. So the, the trend can be up a bit, it can be up a whole lot. Whether it's up a bit, up a whole lot, even if it gone down, there's still such massive inequality of wealth. And that flows from the, the, the very nature and dynamics of, of capitalism. And nobody's talking about that. And that's what's really bothering me. Yeah, and if we go back to figure two from your paper about the composition of wealth and different wealth brackets, uh, you know, the 90% of the, the country has wealth just in the form of a house and a car, maybe, uh, whereas the, the richest 1% have wealth that generates more wealth. Um, that seems to be emblematic of or demonstrative of just the basic reality of a capitalist society that most people have to work in order to afford a house and a car, while a small amount of people um, don't have to work at all because they own means of production that generates uh, surplus value for them. Right. And, and, and I would go further, and I do go further in, in, in the article, um, the whole of capitalism rests on that difference in the sense of if you had people, you know, the great mass of people had productive wealth of their own capital, you know, I mean, um, resources, whatever wealth that could be used to, to generate wealth. If they, they had that, they wouldn't need to work for other people under the direction of other people. The whole of capitalism would just come down collapsing. So the, the, the perpetuation of capitalism requires people who are poor in the old traditional sense, not, not the way we use it now, but poor in the sense that they don't own means of production. They don't have the resources that would allow them to extricate themselves from having to work for other people and under their direction. Okay. Um, if they could extricate themselves from it, they would, and capitalism would come crashing down. So um, it's not just that capitalism creates these differences. It's absolutely, its existence is absolutely dependent on there being people, the great mass of people, you know, without the ability to provide for themselves, without having to go to work day in, day out, generation in, generation out for other people. In other words, they're proletarian. I mean, people, people think proletarian is just some fancy, you know, piece of jargon, but it has a really uh, distinct meaning that, that is important here. Andrew, in your paper, you talk about the wealth of the median household in this country and its trend. Why is that important for your argument? Well, you know, I am concerned with the, the, the kind of misuse that, that Sanders, Bernie Sanders, has made of the, um, the Sias and Zuckman data to talk about a transfer of wealth, which means, or at least most of us would interpret it to mean that the poor are actually, in absolute terms, becoming poorer. They, they have less wealth than they used to. Uh, and I just wanted to say, first of all, that's, you know, not what um, growing inequality of wealth means, you know, you can have growing inequality where everybody's doing better. It's just some are doing so much more better than the others. Um, and then I wanted to show by means of actual data that that's what's, what's going on, that the people in the middle are not doing worse in terms of their wealth given how wealth is measured, they're doing they're doing better. So from the uh, Federal Reserve 
survey of consumer finances. Uh, I got median net worth data using that together with a study by Ed Wolf. Uh, we're able to go back to 1962 all the way to 2016. And it's very clear that even after you adjust for inflation, you know, so it's not that the numbers are going up because prices are rising. You've, you know, corrected for that. The, the median net worth of the people in the middle, uh, the median household, more more than doubled between 62 and uh, 2007, right before the, the Great Recession. That, then, it, then it plummeted. But, but, you know, between 62 and 2007, that's, uh, what, 45 years? Uh, it went up and up and up, and it, it went up by by a good degree. And then you could say, well, maybe maybe that's because of the data source that was used and and, and so forth. But the the Sias and Zuckman data set, you can't you can't find any figures for the median there. But there are figures for the average income of the bottom 90%, which is kind of similar. You know, so the people, the, the average of, of the, the bottom 90%, right? Uh, what's happened to their uh, net worth, their, their, their wealth? Um, and it, it's gone up uh, by a similar degree or even even faster. So however you want to cut it, it it's just not the case that the, the, the wealth of the folks who are not at the top, it's, it's not the, the case that the, their wealth has gone down or even stayed the same. It, it's gone up. You know, but again, you know, when you talk about the wealth of, of, of most people, yeah, you're still talking about uh, the houses that they live in, the cars they drive, the pensions that they have for their retirement years, and, and, and maybe, you know, a, a little bit else, but not much else. Uh, so, so, okay, so what about this, the, the basic claim of drastic rising wealth inequality on the scale that is claimed by uh, Saez and Zuckman. Is that something that you were able to come to a, a definitive conclusion about? No. And that's because nowadays you, you get, okay, well, you got to use tax units and you got to add in for wealth, the Forbes 400, the people at the very, very top that the surveys exclude. And you got to adjust for this and make that correction. There's so, there's so much going on uh, and there's so much guesswork and there's so many imputations and, oh, well, there's all this unreported income and there, there's, there's missing income and there's all kinds of stuff and you know people can make such different assumptions about this and in many cases they're they're all just guessing so you can get widely different results and you really need to be able to sort this all out it's not just a matter of opinion you know it's possible to sort it out but you need expertise in understanding the particularities of, of some very detailed data sets. And you need really expertise in understanding the tax code and changes in the tax code. I mean, only a very few people can like even, you know, I, look, I have a PhD in economics, I've done inequality research and so forth and so on. To understand some of the stuff that's going on like right now, uh, I can understand, you know, on a second reading of a paper, maybe about 70% of what they're saying. Okay. Wow. Wow. But between the very detailed knowledge of the properties of particular data sets, you know, and how a certain data source counts this and counts that and what it excludes and what it includes – uh, you need to you need to know, to know that, and, you need, and then you need to know 
all kinds of issues regarding the tax code. So I can understand on a second reading about, I don't know, 70, 80% of what's being said. Uh, there are probably some people who can understand like 100% of it. And then there's a very small group of people who can actually do these studies, you know. And I, I would say you're, you're looking at, uh, you, you know, the number of people you can count on your, your hands and toes who, who could do that, let's say, for the United States. It's not a large group of people. That, that's, that's where it stands now. So, I, no, I can't say definitively, you know, because to be able to say definitively, I would have to be able to say, well, you know, do I know for sure that when Sias and, and, and Zuckman or, uh, or Piketty, when they claim that there is more misreporting, underreporting of income at the very top, relatively speaking, than in the rest of the population, and the other people say, no, they're wrong about that. You know, it's not massively greater. You know, who's right about that? I don't, I don't know. Okay. And that's one factor. But you add up this factor, the second factor, the third factor, you, you, you get all of these little things going on. And, and that, at the end of it, it could be the difference between a small rise in wealth inequality and an astronomical rise in wealth inequality. Okay. So that's the problem wherein I can't be definitive about this. Although, you know, if I had to bet, uh, I would put my wealth, if I had any, right, I would put my wealth with the, the critics of, of uh, Sias and Zuckman. But if you can't make a definitive conclusion, what's your major, your, your main takeaway from all this research you did? Right. I would say that that is the major conclusion, is that when you hear some numbers, you know, and let's say it's that there's no increase or very little increase in wealth inequality, you take it with a grain of salt. When you hear there's been massive skyrocketing of wealth inequality, you take that with a grain of salt. Maybe you take it with a pillar of salt, okay? Uh, the major takeaway is that we don't really know. Uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty attached attached to these numbers, and it's just wrong to present these numbers as if this is certain knowledge. Uh, it's wrong for researchers to present their findings that way, uh, and it's wrong for politicians uh, and commentators and journalists to follow them down that road. Um, it's just not intellectually responsible uh, as far as I can you know, see. Um, and in fact, um, there's a major researcher, um, a wealth researcher who was in fact, uh, earlier he, he, he co-authored a, a well-known paper with, uh, Emmanuel Saez, uh, and his name is, uh, uh Wojciech, uh, Kupchuk, teaches at uh, Columbia. And, uh, last year recently, uh, he wrote that, um, the Saez and Zuckman wealth estimates are quote, highly uncertain numbers that should be presented together with some explicit notion of the magnitude of the measurement error. All sources of information point to an increase in wealth inequality. Uh, exactly how much is very uncertain and should not be presented as certain. Uh, close quote. Uh, so I, I, I concur with that. And I think that's the major takeaway is we know something, but what we know is probably there's been an increase in wealth inequality. How much? We don't really know. And what should be done to signal that we don't really know is say, okay, you know, my estimate is 3%, but uh, there's a 90% probability it's 1% to 14%, something like that, right? Uh, you know, that, that give, that's the, 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 uh, some explicit notion of the magnitude of the measurement error. It, like it's done standard in a standard way for like... Uh, 
you know, opinion polls, uh, you know, for elections, you know, margin of error of, of three and a half points. Okay, you, you get that regularly. Why are we not getting this regularly from uh, people like uh, Sayas and Zuckman? And, and why are, you know, um, people just taking this stuff, people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, taking some very controversial numbers and acting like this is just, uh, you know, handed down from God? That's, that shouldn't be that shouldn't be going on. Um, so that's that's one of my major takeaways. And my other major takeaway is, of course, you know, this is a secondary issue compared to the screaming primary issue when it comes to wealth inequality, which is that it's enormous. And whatever the trend has been up, not up, very up, a little bit up in wealth inequality, whatever the trend has been, it's enormous and it's always been enormous. And why aren't we talking about that? And why aren't we talking about how it's endemic to capital? Capitalism and the continued existence of capitalism depends absolutely on this massive degree of wealth inequality, such that you're not going to get rid of it except in one way by getting rid of capitalism. You know, and that's because they need to get people to work for them, and we're not going to work for them if we could do something else instead. Okay, so if we had wealth of our own that we could use to produce, we wouldn't go in and submit to their orders and, you know, go down into their minds and, 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 and all of that stuff. We just wouldn't be doing it. So the whole system is based on this. And this is the primary problem of wealth inequality. And nobody's talking about it. The right wing isn't talking about it. You know, the centrists aren't talking about it. You know, the, 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 the so-called socialists aren't talking about it. Why not? Ah, because it goes to the heart of the system. Well, good. Let's talk about the system. Well, that's all the time we have today on this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like this episode, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to hear more episodes, leave a comment, or to contact us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, to share it on social media, to like it, to leave comments, and all those wonderful things. 